backroom politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live from a very disparate nationwide type edition. Uh, I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell, joining you from the Big Apple in New York City. Joining us on the line as they do every Tuesday, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is a man that we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Uh, Admiral Ken, good afternoon, sir. Hey, Justin, how are you? Doing fine, as always. Also joining us online. Now, you see, last week set a bad precedence for this guy. Uh, what we're going to have to do now is we're going to have to give him his own walk-up music. So here we go. Let's try this one. That's right. He is the man that we know as the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents. He is the longtime Senate staffer, longtime, uh, longtime uh, Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider. He's the man that we know as Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hey, excuse me if I dance to my intro music. Hey, 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 this is good stuff. This, this is good jazz. I thought that would be good water, uh, watermelon music for you. Uh, I'm liking also it. Joining, I figured you would. And joining us from a non-disclosed location in uh, Cape Cod, she is our associate producer, Audrey Howerton. And we got a special guest uh, joining us today for the first time. She is the uh, former... Uh, reporter and news producer for NBC News. She's also served as a tenured journalist with NBC, ABC, and several other local and regional outlets. Joining us from Chicago, the second city, Laura Chavez. Laura, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here today. Oh, we're glad to have you. Thank you. Hey, listen, uh, first of all, um, somebody's got some wind going, so we're going to have to check that real quick. But... We have a lot to talk about. Let's start with the big news that's captivated everybody. That has been the, uh, the big news on immigration, in case you didn't hear it. Uh, the big news on immigration coming from the Supreme Court. Let's deal with that one first. Supreme Court handed down an opinion today in the case uh, of Trump v. Hawaii. In a 5-4 opinion, the justices overturned the Ninth Circuit Court's decision and upheld the travel ban. Uh, the the uh, court reviewed the third version of the travel ban, which was issued back in September. Uh, the ban obviously it restricts uh, several countries, basically seven, Iran, North Korea, Syria, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, and Venezuela. Uh, Chad was on the list, but they pulled that back. Uh, it was for various reasons, but he... It basically gives the White House a major, major victory in uh, in their case against what you whether you want to call it the travel restrictions or the Muslim ban, however you want to do it. Um, it was five four verdict. We can break it down. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts delivered the uh, delivered the opinion. Uh, Kennedy, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch joined that opinion. Uh, Justice Kennedy and Thomas, they went concurring opinions. Uh, Justice Breyer 
filed the dissent, and uh, Justice Kagan joined that, and Justice Sotomayor filed a dissenting opinion, uh, and then Justice Ginsburg joined that one. So it uh, it is a interesting, interesting play. The big one I want to talk about, though, is is the the quote that we got uh, from Just, Chief Justice Roberts, and in the ruling, in his opinion, he states, quote, the issue before us is not whether to denounce the statements. It is instead the significance of those statements in reviewing a presidential directive, neutral on its face, addressing a matter within the core of executive responsibility in doing so. We must consider not only the statements of a particular president, but also the authority of the presidency itself. Uh, let me start with you, Alan Moore. This, this sounds like the court handing a much, much needed victory and almost justifies the rhetoric uh, of the president in, in putting this out because – Let's be honest, it was the demagoguery that was the basis of the Hawaii case in the Ninth Circuit. Alan Moore? <laughs> I guess we lost Alan. Uh, <laughs> let, me go, let me go to Ken. Ken Carradine. Did the, is, how significant of a win is this on, well, on the face of it? I, I, think, I think that um, – the the Trump administration will definitely put a W in the put an X in the win column, uh, and, and even though um, the president uh, himself re- reply, uh, referred to it as a watered down version of what he really wanted, um, I think all things being equal, this is not um, the quote uh, Muslim ban unquote. That uh, the president was seeking, because um, last time I checked, the um, the Muslim population in North Korea uh, really wasn't that uh, significant. Um, this is not this, this is not the ban that that he wanted, but uh, nevertheless, I, I think um, the uh, the the halls of the White House are seeing some much needed um, and, uh, and and much desired high fives on this one. They're going to claim it as a victory. Lord Chavez, I mean, going back to the question I was going to ask Alan, is Alan back? I am back. I am back, by the way. So, Oh, okay. There we go. We missed you for a second. Yeah. Let me go to Laura. Yeah. Laura, you know, this, this victory for the president, the whole basis of the state of Hawaii and the attorney general's office out there in the islands was basically going after not so much the policy itself, but the rhetoric that was coming out of the president was that miscalculated? Um, I think it actually. It, I actually do think it was a misstep, in my opinion, because I mean, you're once, twice, three times a travel ban, apparently. But one of the things that I found so uh, dynamic, I guess, is the word I'll choose for this, is that the rhetoric in the White House is what they were focusing on, not the rhetoric of uh, candidate Trump. So candidate Trump was. Uh, Muslim ban, it was calling Mexicans rapists, it was making all of these inflammatory remarks, Uh, got into the White House. The first travel ban clearly was a bit too aggressive for anyone's liking, and it slowly backed off. And um, as uh, Rear Admiral uh, Ken said, it's very much a watered-down version of the first travel ban. With that said, I don't think this decision came as any surprise anyone, uh, the Trump White House had been working towards this adamantly 
uh, it had been very careful with its wording in this entire or in this entire piece, and it really made sure to kind of dot the i's and cross the t's on this one to make sure that uh, it really did fit into the entitled deference of the president. So, Laura, let me let me get this. Let me ask you this as a follow up: Is it is it your belief that? Uh, is it your belief that this doesn't even see the, the Supreme Court if President Trump doesn't go with the demagoguery off the bat in his in like his announcement and his as candidate Trump? Um, I apologize. I don't think I fully understand your question. Uh, is it essentially is the demagoguery of vilifying an entire religious group? Is that yeah. the? I mean, I mean, let's, is that the big law? Yeah, I mean, let's call it what it is. I mean, candidate Trump came out and said, uh, you know, this is a Muslim bill. I mean, he did everything short except make it focused on Muslim countries. Does does the demog? I mean, does this justify almost the demagoguery? I mean, we've been having conversations in this country about the civility of where democracy is for. I'm going to go ahead and guess for almost 18 months, or and then some, since the 2016 primaries began, really. Um, so yeah, this is a massive blow to civility in democracy. This is kind of, by them saying, oh, well, what he said as a candidate doesn't matter as much. It's what he's doing in the White House. It kind of allows any candidate or person running to kind of have that mental, mental moment of like, okay, well, what I'm saying now doesn't really matter. Um, it, I might not be my feet not, might not be held to the fire, so to say. Um, so yeah, this is a massive slap in the face for civility, um, democracy in and of itself. I think, unfortunately, for a lot of people and a lot of stances, it did follow the law. I think the if you actually look at the decision, you can kind of understand why the Supreme Court ruled the way it did. Uh, that being said, who knows what would have happened if Merrick Garland was on the court. I think Gorsuch being the fifth vote really did tip the scales for obvious reasons. You know, Alan, more to that point, you know, we look at uh, at the at the majority uh, opinion on this. They basically came out and said, look, you like it or not, this is in fact within the powers of the presidency. You may not like the guy. You may not like what comes out of his mouth. This is constitutional. But it, it almost seems like that the dissenting opinions on this were making a, a just as big a statement. If you look at the dissent from Sotomayor, she says, quote, a reasonable observer would conclude that the proclamation was motivated by anti-Muslim animus. The majority holds otherwise by ignoring the facts, misconstructing our legal precedent, and turning a blind eye to the pain and suffering of the proclamation inflicts upon countless families and individuals, many of whom are United States citizens. I, I mean, it, it almost sounds like Justice Sotomayor knew, hey, the president's got this, but we don't, you know, we're not going to condone the way he did it. Is, is that accurate? Well, so so Sotomayor, it's very interesting because yes, it's five four, in my opinion. If the president had handled had had started with this one, and not the crazy over the top uh, first ban that they proposed and threw together in a few days and was an absolute disaster, 
and then they withdrew it, came up with a second one that they spent a little more time on and realized that also was not going to make it, pulled that back and, and issued a third, which went through the normal process. It was vetted inside the administration. They, they talked to a lot of people, took their time, put it together, wanted to be sure that they didn't just throw away executive powers by doing something really stupid. If they had started with this one, it probably, it, if it had been challenged, it probably would have succeeded 7281. But because they so mishandled and ham handled the, ham handed the thing from the outset, um, it unfortunately became uh, a 5 4 decision. When you look at the dissent, though, I think you're giving Sotomayor more credit than she deserved. One person joined her, and that was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who did not right. add anything to it. Sotomayor spoke from the bench, which, of course, is a way to get extra attention. My view of her comments, over the top, um, and, and didn't particularly help the cause, uh, although maybe it, it, it helped her own cause. I don't know. She felt passionately about it. Um, and, uh, but, but, but as Laura said at the beginning, I, I wasn't surprised by this. I predicted this long ago when it first happened because finally they went about it in the right way. And the president does have significant authority and, and that was the, 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 the matter of the decision. You don't decide a Supreme Court case based right. on political rhetoric, exaggerated right. talk. You can look at that and reflect on it, but you have to look. I mean, this is an ongoing debate. Uh, the Supreme Court doesn't look at, at, at conversation in the Congress um, when trying to figure out what a law says. It's what do the words on the page mean? What's the underlying law? Is the president operating within the authority granted in law? I'm sorry it was 5-4. But, but here, here's the question, Ken, though. If you look at the majority ruling and you look at what Justice Kennedy said, uh, where he says, quote, we express no view on the soundness of the policy, um, he, it, it almost sounds like they're, not, they're, they're just – Affirming the constitutionality of the role of the presidency in Article One, but they are by no means—I mean, they've got to walk a really tight line in saying, "Look, this guy's an a-hole. We're, you know, we're not going to condone what he says or what comes out of his mouth or the policy is, but he does have the authority." Does that put the justices, particularly the five justices that were uh, that that were in the affirmative, does this put them in a weird position? I, I don't think so. I think I think that is their job to do that. Uh, I, I think that their job is not to bless policy and say whether it's right or it's wrong. They're looking at the constitutionality of what uh, of what the different bodies uh, of of the government want to do with regard to creating laws and executing laws that will affect the people of the United States. So I don't think it 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 uh, it it, it, uh, it taints the court or. Or, or makes them, you know, look one way or the other. I think they did their job, uh, and I, I, I echo Alan's point that um, if the Trump administration had went about this in uh, a manner that was consistent with established protocol and regulation, then uh, I don't one believe that this would have become the football that it became, uh, but also two, 
Um, I think, you know, it's difficult for us. I think it's difficult for, for most people who are not fervent Trump supporters to ignore the rhetoric that has accompanied um, this president and what and and and, and, and uh, I guess his run up to to coming into office. That said, um, um, the the court spoken. Um, again, this the, the Trump administration will, will will paint this as a win. Is it the actual Muslim ban that uh, that uh, Donald Trump Donald J Trump uh, called for when he was running for president? No, it's not. But it, you know, at the end of the day. The, the cognitive dissonance that, that's, that, that we've enjoyed from afar will continue, and this is just another chapter in it. Laura, let me ask you, in, in uh, Justice Sotomayor's comments, she also made a, uh, a, a very direct statement stating that the majority here completely set aside the president's charged statements about Muslims as irrelevant. That holding erodes the foundational principles of religious tolerance that the court elsewhere has so emphatically protected, and it tells members of the minority religions in our country that they are outsiders, not full members of the political community. She even goes as so far as comparing this opinion to a uh, Supreme Court opinion that came down in 1944, in which in which the course the court uh, blessed the internment camps uh, holding Japanese Americans during World War II. Is is that almost sounds like politics from the bench? Am I wrong? Um, in all honesty, I don't think you are wrong. I will say uh, to I believe it was Ken's point when Sotomayor, when Justice Sotomayor spoke from the bench. I think this, the timing of this travel ban is, it has hit an act, a very real chord with uh, the people who are looking towards immigration policy in general. For obvious reasons, people do see similarities between the people that are uh, crossing the border, whether illegally or illegally, uh, to the south, and these people who are, trying to, who are going to be stricken from the United States due to this Muslim ban. I think she had, yes, it was an impassioned statement. And with that, there was a little bit of politics from the bench. But I feel as though, not to, be, not to speak out of turn, but maybe this country needs just like a quick slap of politics from the bench to kind of remind us where our center is. Uh, we are so far to either side. And it's not everyone, and that's the thing. And I think she was trying to kind of remind us, like, hey, guys, um, just so you know, these are we're ruling on this this way, but this didn't have, like, the cleanest of starts. Uh, what the president said as a candidate, we're remember, please don't forget that. What the president has said in recent days about other minorities, I mean, she's the first Latina to ever sit on this bench. She's been there almost a decade, and you know, this is one of a handful of times that we can ever think of her speaking from the bench. This is clearly an impassioned Wait. moment for her, for many people. Um, I imagine there will be, similar to the first travel ban, there'll be a rush of people trying to help and try and make sure that, like, if you, if you are a Muslim from any country, including one of the ones that are on the travel ban, you do get your paperwork filed get uh, the appropriate visas, get anything you need to get in order if you do want to be a part of this country. Um, there was a small amount of, polit of politicking from the bench, yes, but I don't think it was completely unwarranted at this point in time in our country's history. 
Alan Moore, you know, the alt right is, you know, before the ruling came down was all was all coming up, uh, about regarding uh, Justice Sotomayor uh, saying that she should recuse herself, that she, you know, uh, she can't be objective in this. Did 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 her statements feed into that fire? Well, so I haven't seen those comments, um, but if they were coming after. Uh, after the announcement, then it would be pretty clear that they were. I think this was not a little bit of politics on her part. I think this was a lot about politics on her part and her political view and her view and sense of the role of the court, which, as Ken so accurately pointed out, was not the view of those conservative judges. They're not taking a position on the merits, and they're by no means defending anything the president has done. They're saying, we have to push that stuff aside. We have to look at the language of this executive order. We have to look at the president's authority and call it as we see it. And that's what they did. Um, she sees the role of the court differently. Um, but, but she is so out there, in my judgment, uh, on the extreme of saying, how can you ignore what the president has said and figuring out what this means? It's not that hard for, 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 for conservative judges to say, no, 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 the law allow. She has a different view, and she decided yeah. to express it. And she gets a lot of publicity, but again, she got one person signing on to her dissent, only one. Well, let's go. Let's go to a, let's go to our legal mind on the line. Joining us from New York City, she is the former counselor for the uh, Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 in the great state of Ohio. She is a bar certified attorney in New York and the Garden State of New Jersey. She is the one that we know as Sharmila Charlie. Sharmila, you've obviously read a little bit on this uh, on this ruling coming down from the court. What is your take on this? How do you view this legally? So it's an interesting decision. Um, you know, I didn't hear all of what Ellen, uh, what Ellen's commentary was, but I, I do agree with him that um, that the court interpreted this quite narrowly, and I think there are some important legal distinctions to point out as well. So okay, one, you know, one thing, one kind of obvious. Uh, frame of reference we can see here is that you know you, you have sort of the wing of the court that deem themselves originalists or textualists who are the people who you know are generally conservatives who really just go on what's written on the page and then you have the more kind of what sometimes are derogatorily referred to as activists who tend to be the more liberal judges who also uh, want to incorporate legislative intent and history into um, into their rulings and you've all, there, historically, there's always been a tension there. So here you see where the textualists won out by saying, look, on the face of this order, there is no discriminatory animus. And in fact, the, the uh, president and his executive, like his executive departments, cap, various cabinet departments, went through a somewhat rigorous process of, you know, of doing these screenings, of you know, doing a survey, worldwide survey of what countries were implementing what um, – security procedures and, you know, then singling out the countries that were not meeting the minimum baseline standard that the U.S. wanted to implement. And right. And then they also and then they also pointed out how the, the fact that, you know, the U.S. after the initial eight countries were announced, three of them were later removed. I think it was Iraq, Chad and, and one other one. 
And they said, look, so but, this is all evidence showing that there was a rigorous review of this of this policy, and it was implemented kind of without racial or other or religious animus. The other but, thing but here, to, here, to point oh, out, wait, sorry, can I finish? The other thing yeah, to yeah. Um, to keep in mind is that the court rev- so there's three levels of scrutiny under which a law or an order can be reviewed. The, the first and most rigorous is aptly named strict scrutiny, and there the government has a pretty intense burden to show that the law meets a compelling government need and that there is not a um, sort of there was not a alternate way to enact this law that wouldn't discriminate against religion. Then there's intermediate scrutiny, which has a slightly lesser standard. But again, the government has the burden there to show a compelling government interest. And then the third level is rational basis. And that's the only one where the, the, um, the claimant actually has the responsibility to show that this is causing an undue burden and, um, and that, right, that there is some sort of that there's not a compelling national interest to to enact this law. And so rational basis scrutiny is the one where the court will give the most deference to the government. And really, unless the law or the order is incredibly egregious, the court's generally going to side with the government. And so in this case, the court applied rational basis scrutiny because this is an executive order and not a law. But, but let me, so let me I think that's part of the quickly, reason that though. you got a, a, a lowered standard of review. I'm sorry? All right, but let me, let me, let me jump in real quick on that because the, the, the one thing that, that strikes me in this is it almost sounds like that even the minority, even the dissenting justices saw this coming and saying, look, we don't have a leg to stand on, but if you don't think we're not taking a swipe at this, it, it, to me it sounds like they saw that the executive had the authority. It's pretty—it's almost pretty clear in Article One. The the issue I have is that they took it upon themselves to make it a politicalization from the bench. And I, I, am I wrong to be fearful that this sets a bad precedence when we look at the Supreme Court as the the adult in the government room right now? The one non-political effect that we that we really really needed right now, even they got political, and that that sets a bad trend. Am I right to be fearful of that, Sharmila? No, the Supreme Court has always been political. Dissenting opinions are always political, right? I mean, you can be fearful, but there was no precedent set because these are dissenting opinions. The truth is that you know, dissenting, you know, when when sort of the when the opinion leans leftward, you'll have conservative uh, justices, you know, dissenting on political grounds as well. In a lot of the um, sexual or- orientation discrimination cases, you had Justices Scalia and Thomas making arguments that, you know, this has always gone against the natural order of things, and you know, our country was founded on a Judeo-Christian ethic, and you know, politicizing that issue from the right. And now you have, um, and then when you know, more conservative opi- more conservative opinions are issued. You'll have dissenting opinions, you know, such as this one saying, look, like, you can't divorce this order from the nature of the president's rhetoric about Muslims from day one of his campaign. So I think that this, is, this has always been a, a longstanding feature of Supreme Court jurisprudence. So I think that your, your worry is misplaced. Uh, fair enough. Uh, uh, Could I, I add something, Alan, I add something yeah, to this? Please. Yeah, I, I, please. I think m- much as I respect Sharmila and her opinions, um, 
when she says that every dissenting opinion is political, I think that is, pardon the expression, total nonsense. Sorry, so sometimes maybe I misspoke. Not, ev- not every dissenting opinion is political. Well, but that was what she said. See... That's what she said, Sharmila. Yeah. Uh, forgive me for, for being too was... literal, but well, not every dissenting, no, no, not every being, dissenting opinion is political, but you will often literal. find political opinions in dissenting opinions. Well, okay. that's a very uh, different Alan thing finish. than you let... said. Sometimes yeah. you do, no question. Especially if they choose to speak from the bench, which is the most aggressive way to sort of publicize your your differences, and that's what we saw here. So, Alan, but do you agree that my legitimate ear- there are legitimate differences of opinion on what the law is, what the role of the court is that show up in dissent. It isn't political to simply disagree with the role of the court and what the law says. It's not by definition political it may be it you, can be it sometimes is that's all i have to say alan alan do you agree that i mean do you agree with charmola that my my concern regarding the political the politicalization of this ruling is a bad precedent no i don't think this is a special precedent i think there are others that are much more significant than this it this reflects powerful feelings it does concern me in this case. I think that, that my reading of, of Justice Sotomayor's comments, where she was, she was uh, urging the court to pay more attention to the president's statements than it chose to do, um, invites uh, uh, you know, uh, an even more extreme view than we normally see. Um, right. But you know, I'm not a I'm not a true student of the court in that regard, um, but I just haven't. It, it, that was unusual, and that's why I put so much significance on the fact that only Justice Ginsburg, who has not spoken separately at all, joined Justice Sotomayor in in her dissent, which was pretty far out there in my in my reading. Hey, uh, Sharma, one last legal question before we go to break, because we're going to continue on this immigration question when we come back. Uh, the Ninth Circuit, so in the ruling, uh, it doesn't appear that the travel ban is comp- – this isn't a, a huge, big victory lap for the White House. Uh, there is one aspect that says that the court is still kind of working with the Ninth Circuit to rule on the merits of the ban. How does that affect what we have in the ruling today, or does it? Uh, well, I, I didn't. To be honest, I haven't been able to read the whole ruling, and I didn't get to the part where you that you mentioned. But okay. I would think that what that means is that the current order is, you know, is surviving the challenge that was put in front of it, which is that there is a sort of there was a religious animus, and they were standing by these plaintiffs. Uh, to block the bill in its current form. And so the Ninth Circuit blocked one of the origin, one of the prior travel bans. And one of those, because the, uh, one of those, the court allowed to, um, to go on in part, in part when um, for, for, I believe it was immigrants who had no kind of, tangible relationship to the U.S. or no kind of like tangible right. familiar relationship with the U.S. And that that ban subsequently expired, and so the court found it moot. So I'm not sure which um, 
which elements of the ban they are work they are going to be reviewing based on you know a Ninth Circuit decision. But um, right, I think that the the current argument or the current the current ruling refers to the ban as it stands. Right. All right. Well, we're going to take a we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the rollback of the children and separation from families on the southern border. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. We will be back in two minutes. Eh, make it three. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. So you never heard of it is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Sharmila, Admiral Ken, Alan Moore, and our associate producer, uh, Audrey Howerton, joining us from Chicago, Laura Chavez. Hey, Laura, let me start with you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, about, about the walk back of the president's order on zero tolerance of the separation of family, but 
I want to get with you first and kind of, you've obviously talked to some of your friends down there on the southern border. What are you hearing from them as far as any of the journalists getting access? Uh, Are they they being blocked up? What's going on down there? What's the reality? Um, Yeah, so I have a couple friends uh, from several affiliates, to be perfectly honest, uh, who are on the southern border, some of them with translators, some of them are sharing translators. And it very much is a controlled situation for journalists. Where they're not being given full access to any of the facilities. They are, I think, I've only talked with two people who have been allowed in. And even then, it was almost by mistake. And they weren't allowed cameras. They weren't allowed recording devices or anything like that. Um, a lot of what they're getting is very much dependent on what each facility is giving them, and that's been really difficult for them to kind of wrap their head around what's happening in all of these facilities because there are parts of uh, these centers that you're just not allowed to even see or go to. Um, With that said, a lot of the parents that are now looking for their kids, those who have been detained um, or separated from their family, uh, the people or the parents who have since been released and are now trying to find their child are hitting roadblock after roadblock. Um, A lot of people have said, or a lot of uh, my colleagues have said that the one thing that parents wish they would have conveyed to their child is to memorize a phone number. A lot of the kids do have phone numbers, but many of them don't. So they're kind of just floating around in, in somewhere in the United States, to be perfectly honest, uh, hoping that the parent can get in contact with an official who can then create some sort of pathway for them to find them. The cataloging system, for lack of a better term, of where children went is almost acceptable. It's very slow. It's obviously a lot of people are trying to reunite their, with their children and with their families. But with that said, pretty much if you're if the child didn't have a phone number to call, it's going to take weeks, if not months, to reunite. And I know that blows right past the 20-day um, limit for holding a child, but it seems that that's just going to be based on the southern border right now. There aren't a lot of avenues for parents to get in contact with their child that they've been separated from. And uh, the one thing that I think that is kind of a bit more recent of a change that I think could be a slight moment of possible hope is that a lot of these Border Patrol agents are starting to feel the pressure where it is where it was like a zero, toler- zero tolerance, everyone's getting deported uh, mentality. Now they're kind of taking a step back. They're slowing the process down a little bit to say like, hey, does this person actually need to be deported at this moment? Does this pe- person need to be le- detained at this moment? Should we instead bring this person to an actual port of entry? There's a little bit more, um, uh, there's a bit more of a pause, for lack of a better term, um, for what these agents are doing. And I think a lot of that is actually because these are the boots on the ground guys. They're the ones that are feeling the heat from all the protests, from the sit-ins in front of ICE um, agencies. They're the ones that are actually feeling all of the, anger and emotion that is coming off of protesters. I think the Trump agent or the Trump administration is aware of the optics of this, but 
but it's the guys on the ground that are actually feeling the tension, that are actually feeling the way that the United States is kind, or that parts of the United States is really pushing back on them. And that's not a right. position that anyone feels. Alan Moore, you know, with the president now kind of doing a complete 180 on the separation of families and children, uh, it, it it almost – I mean, he took credit for it. I mean, this is a president that sat there and said, I don't have the authority, and it turns out he's the one signing in the White House the authority to do it. Is is, is this gotten just so out of hand, and the administration has lost such control of this issue that uh, – I mean, is is this a big hit for the White House and for the Trump administration? Well, it should be, um, which is not the same thing as saying, yes, it is. The people who don't like Trump, don't like anything about the president, don't like how he thinks, acts, operates, um, uh, think, oh, my God, he's done it this time. Um, but those people have, have been there before only to, to be horrified by the fact that he's uh, so slippery. The people who like him, no matter what, um, are now listening to his rhetoric saying, hey folks, we still have a zero tolerance policy. And the only way, but the only way we can keep these families together is to undo this court order. There was a court order called the Flores case of, 19, of uh, some years ago that basically says you can you can hold people for you, you can hold children no more than than uh, or families with children no more than 20 days. So um, it, 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 it is just an absolute and complete disaster. And one of the it, it, we got a nice description there from Laura about what's going on around the country. And we don't have a lot of facts. Um, and I, we don't know whether it's because they won't share the facts or because they don't have the facts. And most of us think there's a combination. They won't share everything they know, and they don't know everything they should know. And who wants to own up to that? The reason they don't know everything they should know is because this idiotic policy was put together, you know, like from in a 24 or 48-hour period when they said, do it, let's do it. And, and they, they shocked literally the thousands of employees along the border who were charged with carrying out the law and basically given a, 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 no more than an overnight order. From now on, if you don't come in at a port of entry, you come in um, at, at another place, um, parent and, and pull the kid. And no thought was given to forget the politics, which we know was a disaster and helped turn this thing around. But no thought given to how would we do that? Where would we take these kids? Where would we put them? What about a six-month-old versus a six-year-old or a four-year-old or a 12-year-old? And when we hear these stories, well, this kid spent six hours on a bus getting to somewhere in Oklahoma. Or here's a kid in New York, and there's a kid in Oregon. And it's like, what was the logic? There may be logic in some of right. those cases, right. but there was no opportunity to do the kind of planning 
that you need to do. And now we're on the backside of that when you're trying to undo it. And they say all the, the, the government, all the administration can say is, we know where all the children are. This is just going to take some time. Well, prove it then. Don't say yeah, it. We so, don't believe people don't believe their government anymore. And it's a it's shocking. a slow going rolling disaster and the and the yeah. president is still trying to say, Hey, it's and, still and Justin, zero tolerance and his followers support him. And Justin Right. Admiral Ken, go this, ahead. This this what's what's make what's I think makes this really um difficult uh to watch and um and try to comprehend is that this was this is a mess as Alan pointed out, but this is a mess of their own making. Uh, this was a calculated uh, implementation of a policy designed to make the president look strong for his base, and um, they basically put the same level of planning into this that they put into the before discussed uh, immigration ban. Um, it was it was you know somebody's. You know, bright shiny idea at, at two o'clock in the morning, and by eight o'clock in the morning, somebody was implementing it, without any any thought to secondary and tertiary events. Um, and, and I think I think, you know, a, a little bit of thought was given to um, people like our guests and what they would say, but everybody knows that they're the enemy of the people anyway. So uh, who cares what the press says? But I honestly right. thought that I, I honestly thought that. I believe that he that they thought that this was not going to uh, have the, the the negative wings uh, that it has taken on, and um, and it's going to be I guess if if the if there were not children involved, if there were not families torn apart, uh, if there were not the case where some of these people are truly truly um, uh, looking to, to 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 save their lives by fleeing. Um, then it might be you know a great academic uh, activity just to watch the, the the Trump administration get themselves out of this. But the fact of the matter is, all of those preconditions I just described are in place, and it's sad. And I think from from a uh, from a, a an American uh, doing the right thing, uh, high profile perspective, it makes us look bad. It makes us look seedy. It looks it makes us look really really um, not a, a country that should be the beacon on the hill that that that, that Reagan in uh, in uh, Bush forty one described. Right, Sharmila, we're, we're are we starting to see what could be uh, a, a a Justice Department that might be losing its footing on this? Uh, the you know we've seen some of the comments coming from uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, even Sarah Huckabee Sanders' comment of. You know, you know, we don't need due process. We don't need judges. We're just going to throw them out anyway. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously, that was not her quote. But um, are we starting to see the the essential erosion of this position that the the administration's taking? Well, I think that the, as uh, as Ken is so fond of saying, you know, the the fish thinks from the head down. All of this sort of – all of this is directed by the president. You know, it's become increasingly clear from reporting that, you know, cabinet heads – you know, we'll, we'll talk about Secretary Mattis later in the show, but it's been, you know, increasingly clear that, you know, Attorney General Sessions doesn't have any real authority or power over large-scale decisions like this, right? The president is issuing all these directives from the top, and I think that 
rather than the erosion of the rule of law, what you're really seeing is kind of the, the administration's poor coordination and their mixed messaging, you know, allowing people to speculate about things like this, right? When, you know, I think the president, I didn't catch that Sarah Sanders quote about not needing due process, but the president himself has said that, which is incredibly frightening, right? We should be really really frightened that the president of the United States, who is supposed to be the chief enforcer of the laws in this country, is basically saying that we don't need the rule of law anymore. That, I think, needs to be the headline more so than, you know, any activities of the Justice Department. But but here's, here's, here's the thing that, 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 that strikes me, Laura, is that we're starting to see uh, almost the compassionate side of some of these administration officials. I give you uh, Customs and Border Protection Commissioner uh, Kevin McAllen, uh, who, who who's who's a a true true uh, great commissioner of that agency, but he basically came out and said, "Look, we're stop we're going to stop referring prosecution or we're going to stop referring adults for prosecution that are traveling with children. We're just going to stop." Uh, it's not right until my, until my command authority starts getting their head together. Uh, we're just not going to do it. Is that a good sign that we're starting to see some sort of, dare I say, dissent inside the administration? And, the, and these are the people that are at the front line? I sure hope so, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think it's not necessarily a the most heartfelt way of like, oh, we're seeing this happen, we're, you know, we're, it's having an emotional toll on us. I have a feeling it is genuinely more of a peer pressure type feeling. They're seeing what's happening going on in the country. They're seeing all these protests. They're seeing these marches. They're also having to deal with this. And I feel like one of the things that um, I was remiss to mention, but it's a very stressful situation. And I know that goes without being said, but it's a stressful situation very much for these refugees and immigrants trying to come into the country. But it's also a very stressful situation for all these border agents. Um, a lot of them are, you know, dealing with a lot of children. And anyone who's been in a room with even just one child knows it can be a very frustrating situation. But these kids are terrified. And comforting a terrified child of any age is a very stressful situation. You're also having to deal with... Um, the fact that, yes, uh, to Alan's point, they are wildly unprepared, um, including for, like, medical reasons. When they're taking these kids, it's not like they're getting medical histories. So, yeah, I think having them back off and just kind of slow the process down is a little bit of peer pressure. It's also to kind of help them catch their breath, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. Um, Alan, the, there's now – Several competing immigration bills that are, are floating around. Uh, there's one that seems to be the go-to bill, and it appears last night House Republicans uh, were putting an amendment uh, into the legislation that would expand the E-Verify program and new guest worker programs. Uh, is this quote-unquote compromise bill got legs? Well, <laughs> it it. It's got broken legs. Um, I mean, it may be able to crawl along a little bit. It's not like it could win a race. Um, it, it, the, the fact that they're still working on it, I think, is a good thing. Um, 
but but the the Republicans themselves are still very divided on this stuff, and they and and they 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 have wrapped a. a uh, they, they've tied their hands a bit by by insisting that they need a majority uh, of, of Republicans to approve anything, and the Democrats so far seem not inclined to adopt uh, what, what they consider to be half measures when much fuller measures are required. So I, I think that it's a long, it's a it's a it's a real challenge. The, they, they are working, and I think there is a recognition. That that they've got a major problem on their hands. The the optics are horrendous. Some of the the conservative religious leaders who have heretofore been standing on the sideline to their embarrassment, um, at least it, the, their embarrassment if they want to claim that they are true Christians, um, uh, some don't seem to mind that much. But 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 a number of them have stepped forward and been highly critical of the. Uh, the, the the separation of children uh, issue. So uh, as for legislation, I, th- th- it's possible it's something pretty narrow um, uh, would would be the ultimate outcome. I don't see a broader uh, bill happen. The president uh, undercut even that effort last week when he said, "Yeah, never mind. We're not going to be able to get this done until after the election." This one when uh, House leadership was working overtime trying to, to, to create an environment where a conservative measure would get a vote, which it got and failed, uh, to no one's surprise, and then a, a, a more moderate compromise would, would be voted upon in, on which they were hoping to get close to uh, unanimous support from the Republicans and then they realized that wasn't going to happen, that some of the conservatives were just not going to go along with some of these more moderate uh, pieces. So the, the legislative route is a mess uh, at, at, at this point. It's, and that's why I say it, it's got legs, but, they, but they're broken. And, they're, and it's sort of the, the, the process is crawling. Right. Charmla, the uh, leadership in both the House and the Senate have expressed a desire to try and get some sort of legislation together before the July 4th recess. Um, are they high? Well, <laughs> I mean, I thought I was high when I read reports that Ted Cruz and Diane Feinstein were working on a bill together, but I was not. <laughs> and that is actually true. <laughs> so true. I think you you see that there is... I think that, you know, to Alan's point, there is a bipartisan effort on some really narrow issues, right? I think the Cruz-Feinstein bill would really just target child separations. So, you know, like, like Alan said, I think there's some hope. It's a dim hope that anything will be accomplished. But I think if it does, if something does get accomplished, it's going to be on a very narrow issue basis. You're not going to get um, comprehensive, substantive immigration reform that gets bipartisan support in the next six weeks. I mean, I mean, I mean, Laura, is is this an instance where this was such a huge screw up by the White House and the administration that they actually screwed up so badly they forced Congress to get bipartisan? I mean, I hate to set that precedent as to you know forward motion, but yeah, I think it actually might be the case where. Everyone, it, nothing unites people like a common enemy, and seeing the 
crying child or hearing those tapes really kind of united a lot of people and like, hey, we don't want to be on the side of politics that endorses children being ripped from their parents or even having the verbiage of having a child ripped from anything is really not what you want on your party stance. So yeah, I think a lot of people are willing to reach across the aisle uh, to stop this family separation and really try and get some momentum in any direction that is not, you know, quote unquote, baby cages. Baby cages. That that may be a new hashtag starting after the show. Thank you for that one, Laura. Oh, baby no. cages. <laughs> you know, one of the things. Uh, I think MSNBC yeah, beat you to it. Damn. Damn. Ah, Admiral Ken, go ahead. Well, one of the things that I, I thought might uh, might shake out of this uh, is the, um, the 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 lie early on that this was a law that this was a democratic law versus uh, a policy that the president put in place. And um, I mean, even you know, we talked about this a little bit, you know, on the previous show that even the the DHS secretary um, uh, was kind of caught surprised by this. And uh, it took her a day or so to get on board uh, before she decided to go dining out in uh, in, in restaurants. But um, but I, I I thought that you know at least you know with with the 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 effort to put some legislation in place, um, the the folks on the the Democratic side of the aisle would you know would 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 scream loud and long louder and longer than what they're doing so far. And it, it's almost like. Uh, it's it's gone deaf now, and it's 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 it feels like they're almost a normalization of of of, uh, of this story. When um, and don't get me wrong, you know, being a voting Republican, you know, I I don't often take the sides of Democrats, but you know, nobody likes to have a lie told on them, and this is definitely one of those situations. And I thought for perhaps the the protest of that would be louder. Yeah, I, I mean, I I think everybody thought that would be the case but uh i mean is 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 this issue going away anytime soon around the horn let me start with sharmila which issue you're referring to are you referring to immigration is, is, reform as a whole no, or this, child separation no, this, the family separation is this going to haunt going into 2018 the administration sharmila oh certainly i think the democrats are playing their hand as strongly as they can, perhaps overplaying it. Well, we have yet to see, but the Democrats are not going to stop touting this until November. Laura Chavez. Uh, I agree with Sharmila. I think it's really up to the Democrats. I will say this is, I think, the first week or the first time in a long time where we've had the main story of two consecutive weeks be the same story. So it's really up to the Democrats to keep holding everyone to this story, if they can do that, then I think we'll be talking about it for a couple couple more months at least. Admiral Ken? Um, if the administration uh, does not uh, get its messaging and uh, its messaging, its process, its messaging and the messaging about the process in place and start showing um, some, um, uh, some clarity uh, to the American public, uh, either through their own um, uh, people in, in, uh, at the podium in the White House, or uh, even inviting their, uh, their 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 principal news outlet, Fox News, into uh, showing some things. Because if you notice, not even Fox News has been allowed into some of these centers yet. 
And uh, but if if they don't get that messaging straight, if they don't start showing some clarity, yeah, this is going to be with them for a while. And if the Democrats are smart, they're going to hang this uh, hang this around the Republican necks like a like a piece of meat around 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 the uh, uh, a, a rabbit dog. Absolutely. Alan Moore. So the Democrats will want this to stay alive. It seems to me that the big question is partly what Ken was saying: Will the administration get its act together? But the bigger piece of that, and in my judgment, is what actually happens to the 2,000 kids who we know were separated, and a few hundred of, are now back with their parents. If they get the other 2,000 back with their parents in the next week or two, that will have a huge impact on the, on the, uh, uh, the longevity of this particular story. The longer there are kids out there that are not with their parents who who were separated during this time, it is an absolute disaster for the administration, no matter, uh, no matter what it does. Wow. Okay. Hey, um, Audrey, can you come let me, let second? me, can oh, I just okay. add two quick things yeah, from, yeah, from yeah. the earlier conversation? Absolutely. Yeah. Two thoughts. Sure. One regarding Jeff Sessions, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was said um, that, that he's a puppet who doesn't do anything which is pretty hard to uh, – it doesn't have much authority on his own. It's hard to argue that. This is a, an odd case where he appears to have been a believer in this new policy. Stephen Miller, the, <laughs> the notorious <laughs> Stephen Miller advisor to, in the White House, came from Sessions' staff. So this is one where Sessions appears to have supported this grotesque policy – and it's curious that the impact of that is conceivable that the Congress, who's been kind of grudgingly supportive of Sessions when he came under attack from, uh, from the president, so Republicans uh, supportive of him, might conceivably say, sorry, Jeff, you went too far on that one. So that's one thought. The other, the other comment I wanted to make was when, when you were suggesting that the head of, of – uh, uh, is it ICE? Was no. You were characterizing I'm sorry, Border Protection, was, saying, "Hey, don't do that anymore." I doubt very much whether he gave that "don't do it anymore" order, because that would be in my and in, in, in we maybe we're not totally understanding each other here. Just uh, a direct refuse, uh, uh, an absolute immediate refusal to carry out a direct order. Those are firing offenses. That's anarchy. That's not what we want here. What we want is policy. You know, there's flexibility around the edges, but what we don't want is officials in the government who disagree with what's happening up on top to simply refuse, refuse to carry out uh, policies, however stupid they may be. What we want is those people to make noise and to resign, but not to just, Act like anarchists. I love Ken's well, Ken's thoughts think... on on whether we think it's a good idea for people in the chain of command to simply refuse to carry out lawful, I I albeit stupid orders. No, I don't think I. You know, I, I think that's. You know, what he's doing is he is taking his his uh, duties, which and the, and the duties of each one of those. Uh, CBP officials, whether at the port of entry or with border patrol in between the ports of entry, what he's saying is is no different than what any other law enforcement official has, is they have the discretion 
to not refer for prosecution. You know, it, it's a matter of it is no different than a uh, a cop that sees somebody holding a bag of grass and telling them to dump it on the ground. So you know they 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 don't uh, they don't ruin their lives in in uh, in the legal system. But, I, what, but what Justin, I think that's said, the whole zero, that's the whole zero tolerance issue that 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 got us into this bind in the first place. Zero tolerance well, means you don't you take the discretion away. Right, which and, which they which they did, but what what they're saying is is that now that there's an order from the president that says we're going to keep families whole. What they're not going to do, and this is their discretion, is refer – because, I mean, let's be honest about this. I mean, if you want to look at this from a judicial system standpoint, what you've got is a situation where you've got an overwhelmed Border Patrol, an overwhelmed Customs and Border Protection Agency at the ports of entry. Uh, field ops is stretched then, which are the blue suits at the ports of entry. And then on top of that, you've got an Overflow. You've got a surge of all of these uh, migrants that are seeking refuge or seeking entry or seeking asylum into the United States, and quite frankly, even the you know the Executive Office of Immigration uh, uh, Ruling, which is the Judicial Court for Immigration Status, even EOIR is overwhelmed. They don't have enough judges. So what they're saying is, look. You know, I don't have. I don't have. I, I'm not going to refer it to a U.S. attorney that's only going to have these people locked up in the system because they're going to be at the bottom of the heap, and this heap may be five years, two years, one year long, and that's still too long. I think what they're doing is they're trying to say, look, we're not going to refer them for prosecution. I'm just not going to bring the case to the U.S. attorney. If the U.S. attorney wants to, you know, order us to bring a case to them, fine. I don't think there's a U.S. attorney. In the southern border states that are that are going to even remotely try and do that, I think what Kevin McKelling did. Do I think he'll get fired? Yeah, he's actually going to be my pick, and I'm setting my flag right now, Audrey. I am picking Kevin McKelling. But here's the thing: is I think he showed some political courage. I think he showed backbone. I think what he did was the right thing to do for his agency. He put himself in front of a huge bullet coming from the DOJ and coming from the White House, uh, I think what he did was courageous. I think he was trying to protect his agents. I think he was trying to protect his agency. And quite frankly, I think he's doing it because where are they going to go? If they if they get him and they refer him for prosecution, where are they going to go? How are they going to prosecute him? So that's just my take, Alan. I, I hope, you know, no, I didn't mean and, to go out. And that's fine. Also, I'm, you know, it, for me, it's, it is simply the principle of the extent to which uh, someone in the executive branch should take it upon himself or herself to ignore lawful orders up the chain of command. People who do that um, <laughs> do so at their own personal peril. The, yes, it can be enormously courageous, and many of us could, could find that we completely agree with the position they take and admire uh, them for 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 acting on moral principle, but they should not be able to do not, that, in my judgment, with with I, impunity. I, I, there are consequences to violating lawful orders if that's what occurred here. What I what I don't want to do is turn this into a my lay discussion. 
is, and that's what I definitely don't want to say. Um, a my lie discussion. Where thank you. Say, I have the same the, the same horrified what? Thank you, Admiral. <laughs> I'm just it's it, it is the you know it's a, it's a, it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing when I know what's uh, going on in Justin's mind. It's just a oh scary my thing. God, you knew yeah. where I was going with this. Oh I knew God, what was I, going on too. I was horrified. At the, at the use of that particular parallel, or, yeah, um, I yeah. was hoping Ken, you would talk, you would talk about about consequences of violating lawful orders. Um, All right, uh, we got to go to break, uh, guys. And, and... We got to go to break. I got to go to break. Give me, give me. Well, we can talk about this if you want when we come back because we got other stuff like tariffs <laughs> and what that. And speaking of Milai or chain of command authority, we're going to talk about that when we come back because. Apparently, uh, nobody in the administration is listening to Jim Mattis, and apparently the world knows it. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about that and other things. Uh, this is, and by the way, uh, Laura Chavez, don't think less of me. Don't don't judge me for that last one. <laughs> now that, oh, there is one thing I there, there is one thing I do want to do. Uh, Audrey, are you on? Audrey, she's in her she's in her. Okay, Audrey. Um, so, baby cages is already a hashtag that's trending on on um, on uh, Twitter. Is that correct? Oh, um, I don't. Is it? I don't know. Yes, it is. It is. Thank I believe you. it has been used, thinking. and I wouldn't be surprised uh, just because I know that several uh, MSNBC anchors, including Rachel Maddow and a couple of her other reporters, had trouble saying it. Uh, even though it's tender, I think it's tender age facilities, so they kind of swapped it to they baby call it cages. Baby, baby cages. Okay. Can you it's check me? I want, I want you to. I want you to check the hashtag, Audrey. Range free children. Range free children. Yeah. If that's not a hashtag, I want to start that. Justin, I'm not sure you I, want to use that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, children yeah. are not chickens, Justin. Yeah, no, no, this is not fun. Yeah, that's not cool. <laughs> not, not, cool. not good. Okay. Not cool. All right. No. Uh, fine. I think, we'll take free, a break. I think you meant free range children anyway, but it's not cool either way. So. What did, what did, again, what did I mean? You meant free range children. Again, being inside of your head right now is just a scary place. Go to break. It's killing me. <laughs> we're, okay, we're going to go to break. When we, when we come back. When we come back, we're going to talk about General Mattis and what's going on over there at DOD. This is Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you never heard of, live on Block Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back here for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me is a do every Tuesday, Sharma Achari, Ken Carradine, Alan Moore, and our our uh, associate producer, Audrey Howerton. And joining us from Chicago is former NBC and ABC News talent, Laura Chavez. Hey, um want to talk to you guys about what's going on over at DOD. There is apparently a command authority problem, or is it just a matter of nobody cares what Secretary of Defense is saying when it comes to U.S. policy? Uh, he has gone, according to several sources, most notably, Laura, your old colleagues up there at NBC, uh, Secretary Mattis has gone from talking to the president multiple times a day uh, and being part of the inner circle to somebody who is basically learning about presidential directives on defense and foreign policy by Twitter feed. Uh, This has got a lot of people in uh, the national security and defense circles very much in, uh, in a fray, very much concerned uh, the the pause, you know, they bring up the issue of the pause in U.S. military exercises in South Korea. Well, apparently nobody consulted the Secretary of Defense or the Defense Department on that. Uh, the There's been several issues, including Middle East policy, that has been brought forward that nobody consulted the Pentagon for. And it seems to be setting a very, very ugly precedence. Admiral Ken, let me go to you. Uh, how how nervous should the American electorate be hearing these reports that there's just no communication to speak of between the Secretary of Defense and the White House? Well, I I think most of the uh, most of the American most of the American public uh, probably doesn't doesn't even really think about that unless we're about to uh, pull the trigger on somebody. So that's that's the first thing. Um, secondly, um, Secretary Mattis uh, enjoys uh, widespread respect and admiration um, from from most people in uniform. Um, you know, over over ninety five ninety five percent, and then a good number of you know of, of, of old retired dogs like myself. Um, I, you know, one of the things that 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 about Mattis that it's really kind of a impressive. He's a no BS kind of guy. Uh, if he thought, you know, in, in my my opinion of him, and I think it's just a shared uh, with a lot of us. If he thought that he was getting painted into a box by anybody, that uh, there was um, uh, widespread um, disrespect of him in uh, um, in treating him in a in a in a, in a disrespectful manner. Uh, by anybody, um, I, you know, I, I would not be surprised if Jim Mattis, you know, very quickly submitted his resignation. You know, here's a guy who's gone to war, uh, who is very, very outspoken. Um, you know, did not need this job, uh, took it because he thought he was serving serving his country. And if at the point that he felt that he was his services were no longer uh, being valued or necessary, he'd be the first to punch out. And that's just one of the reasons I like him. 
is 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 there a concern from what you're hearing from your contacts inside the Pentagon or inside no. the armed forces that 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 is imminent? No. 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 Okay. Interesting. I mean, Lord Chavez, when we look at the stuff if we look at the big policy, and these are some big ticket policy issues just since December that would normally require the, at least the consultation of the Defense Department that the White House just went and did. I mean, you're talking about um, the moving of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Secretary of Defense was against that, saying it would cause a heightened security concern in the region. Uh, it includes uh, the withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal, uh, ordering the Pentagon to create space force, barring transgender people from serving openly in the military, uh, the cancellation of uh, military exercises with Korea. Uh, the choice of John Bolton of na- as national security advisor. All of these are very, very important decisions that one would think would require the Secretary of Defense at least his advice or at least his thoughts. And they're just going off off the le- off the ledge here. Is, is, is this is this sustainable, Laura? Uh, I. I don't believe it is, and I have the utmost respect for everyone in our military, including um, Mattis, but I will say that this has this kind of echoes a certain pattern of behavior from this administration. If you look at the way uh, Rance Priebus was treated or Rex Tillerson or Steve Bannon, they were first, they, before they decided to depart the White House, they were kind of phased out of several big conversations. And I think that it would be a true injustice if um, that was kind of the road we were going down. But I think it does speak to a certain uh, pattern that this administration has. It's not to say that uh, General Mattis will be on his way out, but he, I think he came in in January of 2017. So he has one of the longer tenures with this administration. Uh, that being said, I know that he isn't necessarily the biggest fan of uh, Bolton or Pompeo, and it seems those are the guys who are now moving into the inner circle. So it really is going to be um, almost a battle of wills or a battle of minds at that point in time to see who is willing to, if uh, Defense Secretary Mattis is willing to actually push through this block and see if there is you know, room on the other side to get back into that inner sanctum of the Oval Office and talk with the president um, as consistently, consistently as he was, or if it's one of those things where he just has to say, like, I'm not going to get back in. I'm not necessarily as much as he wants to serve his country. If he can no longer do that, or if he is being pushed out, I think that's something that he's going to have to kind of understand or come to terms with, because it seems pretty clear that the president is here for at least another two years. And if uh, Defense Secretary can handle kind of being out of the loop that long, that's a grave injustice to the United States in general because he should be consulted in all of these, if not more, um, topics. But it seems he's really kind of getting the old cold shoulder 
and being pushed out of the inner circle clique that Trump so heavily likes to surround himself with, and he wouldn't be the first person to go down this path. So, go ahead, Admiral Ken. So, uh, I, I think that um, that there's a there's a belief um, that 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 the Secretary of Defense. Um, <coughs> heretofore um in previous administration has been a voice that um uh, was i guess more resonant or at least as resonant as, as that of secretary of state or or any of the other members of the cabinet uh it really depended on what was going on at the time so that that's the first thing um i think it's also important to point out that um we have yet to see from this administration a uh, a national defense strategy I mean, we haven't seen that. Um, that that that, and, and so um, the the DoD has been left to figure out, kind of figure that out on their own, and they've been very quietly, you know, working uh, on in the sidelines to, to to do what they need to do in order to be able to um, to to win whenever whatever um, war you know the president or Congress decides to, you know to to uh, to declare. Um, so I, I'm not at this point concerned that um, Jerome Mattis has been pushed to the side. I think, quite frankly, uh, I, I was a little surprised about the, uh, um, the the declaration that we were going to withdraw from exercises in Korea. Not um, not because um, it, it went it went sideways to DOD, but because, quite frankly, the president gave Kim Jong Un exactly what he wanted without getting anything back in return or much back in return. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the general Mattis probably protested that a little bit, but at the end of the day, um, you know, that's not going to make or break DOD. It's not going to make or break Mattis. He's not going to basically, you know, um, throw himself prostrate on the floor of the Oval Office over that issue. I think when it comes down to, uh, making decisions that are going to directly affect the operations and the lives of military personnel, I think that's when you're going to see him step up, um, or right. step out. Or step out. So uh, right. I, I think you know his 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 profile, high or low, it, it really depends on what's going on in the world. And uh, so far, this has been a, a Secretary of State Donald Trump. Um, um, uh, and I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on, on Trump's son-in-law's name right now, uh, just because Jared it's Kushner. Oh, Kushner. Yeah. You're thinking of Jared, Jared Kushner. Jared, Jared Kushner kind of kind of deal. And um, DOD is just, you know, we're they're they're just doing what they need to do to be ready for it. So, well, you know, this brings up, you know, a, 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 a this is kind of an odd situation that we're experiencing here. I mean, Alan Moore, we've seen skirmishes where, uh, you know, where Robert McNamara didn't get along with his uh, staff chiefs on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, we saw uh, skirmishes between even uh you know people like dick cheney and 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 other and, and and several staffers inside of state or inside the national security council but this is the first time that it's gone uh commander in chief to secretary of defense uh does it surprise you that we're seeing this now come down yeah let me say i don't think it's the first time we've seen a president get crossways with the secretary of defense but but there are two things here, and, 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 and they've been touched on uh, already, particularly by Ken. There's, 
there's the, the, the authority that Secretary Mattis had with the president, the dependence, if you will, the president had on Secretary Mattis in the early going, largely because he didn't particularly like or respect either Secretary Tillerson or National Security Advisor McMaster. And so Mattis took on a, an extra role that he should not have had. But it, as, as Ken points out, it, it depends on personnel. It depends on what's going on in the world. If the president's un, not satisfied with what he's hearing on foreign policy from, uh, from Tillerson and, and, and McMaster, and he likes Mattis in return, he'll start asking Mattis all kinds of questions that, that are beyond the, the normal purview of the, of, uh, of the Defense Department. And he'll have kind of this reliance, and, and Mattis will have to be on call to the president at all times. That, that's a, a very mixed blessing for somebody like Mattis. Now he's got Pompeo, and he's got John Bolton. Um, I think Pompeo and Mattis get along fine. I think Bolton and Mattis have had their differences. Who knows? Maybe we'll learn more or less about all of that. But, but what, what uh, it's a... It's a Forgetting the personalities and what we think about them or know about them, it's a much healthier arrangement if the president doesn't have this exclusive uh, reliance on any one person, and particularly on Secretary Mattis. So that in and of itself is, is not an automatic bad thing. It lets Mattis do his job. What's bad, though, is if the president does not even consult Mattis on things that are within his purview when he, the president, announced the new policy on transgender persons in the military. Supposedly, there was no conversation with Mattis at all, and it created all sorts of havoc inside. And Mattis, if you'll remember, said, we're studying it. We'll come up with a proposal. And it, the whole original notion got significantly watered down. I think in that case, the president actually learned something, which is you know something I don't say very often, um, and, and realized, okay, hey, we sometimes we really do need to talk over there with regard to uh, North Korea and the concession to the, to the South Koreans, uh, I'm sorry, the, the concessions to the North Koreans about joint exercises with the South Koreans. Apparently from what I've read, it was known that that was kind of something that was out there that bugged the North Koreans. It was not expected that the president would offer it, but, but people understand this president is prone to do things in the moment. I mentioned it only because it's not as if Mattis wasn't aware that there was a little that that subject might might come up. But as Ken points out, the president gave it up without getting anything in response, which which no one that I that I that I can think of who would advise a president would have said, oh, that's a good idea. The president, of course, thinks he got all kinds of things. So he'll say, are you kidding? We got this and this and this. Um, none of which has been documented, none of which has yeah, but, really been playing out. Yeah, but and, Alan, but Alan, it, it, I, 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 let me just finish that thought. So, so with Mattis, these other issues we're talking about, if the more that Mattis is not even consulted, the president gets to make up his mind. Mattis understands the chain of command. He understands that the president is the ultimate decider. But if he doesn't even get to have his say, then he's going to leave. And, uh, yep. And NBC says that he's not being listened to, but other people are not really reporting that yet. So I, I need to hear some more on this. But I think those two things, uh, you know, in terms of the role of the secretary, are at play here. 
I mean, I mean, I mean, it's obvious that they're not listening to him, Sharmila. I mean, the president came out just two weeks ago. We've been joking about Space Force. But the reality is what the president did without consulting the Secretary of Defense is just change the entire uh, composition Purview of, of the, the Pentagon. Yeah, the, the entire the, entire, the armed forces. How do you how do you know, how do you know he didn't consult? How do you know he didn't we, consult? I, because that's because what's being reported. No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on, Alan, Alan. No, Alan, Alan. Hold on, hold on, Alan. I can tell you through two sources that I've talked to that are very familiar. One of them, including a source in Space Command, that at no point did the president come up with the Space Force idea or advise the secretary that he was going to come up with it. Because had he gone to the secretary and said, hey, I want to create a Space Force, Secretary Mattis would have said, Mr. President, we have that. It's called Mm -hmm. Space Command. That is their role. It is under the purview of the Air Force. Now, if you want to create a galactic space empire force, then that's going to require a brand new piece of enabling legislation for how the Department of Defense is made up. That's the consultation he would have gotten. We know he did not consult before going out on on Space Force idea. Well, I respectfully disagree with that, but it, it doesn't really matter. If if he if they no, no, he, consult, and what what I, what I have read is that Mattis had made clear he thought that was a bad idea. Now, it, either way, either way, you got a you got an ongoing problem with Mattis. Either he's not asked, which is the worst thing, or he's not. You know, he he's no longer has influence, which builds up over time, and eventually leads to is 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 Ken. Uh, uh, accurately pointed out that Mattis, of all people, he's just going to say, "Okay, we're done. Thank you for uh, giving me the chance to serve." Um, and uh, he doesn't want to do that. He's got to yeah, be. He thinks he's sure. doing a lot of really important things that he is doing. He's running the the Defense Department for God's sakes. Well, no, but, so but, but, Justin, go ahead, go ahead, Ken. Go ahead, Ken. Justin is partially right in that we we do have the United States Space Command. And I'll, well, I'll bet, disagreeing I, with that. Hold on, hold on, hold on. And I'll bet dimes to donuts that the president didn't know that Space Command existed, and that you know somebody whispered something to him, or he watched the movie over over the holiday weekend, and next thing you know, we've got this we've got this pronouncement about the Space Force. But I, I go back to my 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 original statement. One, um, Jim Mattis is the kind of guy that if he thinks that uh, his time is being wasted. He'll punch. He'll just go. And, and, and unlike Tillerson uh, and unlike um, uh, a couple of other folks who've left, left the, uh, the administration, he will do so quietly. He will do so respectfully uh, because that's how, that's, how, that's how we're wired. And, and he, you know, and I, I think Justin, I mean, Alan maybe alluded to this, is that every military officer, especially at the flag and general officer rank, knows that they serve at the pleasure of the president. And when the Correct. president's when the when the president's done, you know your your job is to basically say, hey, you know what, sir, the pleasure's been mine. Thank you for the opportunity to serve, and, and I'm I'm gone. So you, at right. the point at which at the point at which Mattis feels like he's being he's not being used properly or uh, correctly, he's gone. He's out. My my fear is that that's that's coming sooner rather than later. Sharma, I mean, this has got to get 
a little bit dicey as far as you know you know who's really got the president's ear on true defense issues. I mean, are we going with a John Bolton, Mike Pompeo uh, trifecta with the president, or you know should we be concerned about this news possibly coming out about General Mattis? Well, I think that all the reporting I've seen is that the president's number one uh, source for defense policy is himself, right? The president came into this role with a lot of already set opinions on everything from foreign policy to defense policy to immigration to health care to a, a whole swath of issues. And, you know, at the beginning, I think he was pers- – no one expected him to win. He was persuaded by more moderate and established Republicans to fill his cabinet with people who are more moderate, who would be palatable to the Senate, who would be confirmable, and who would essentially steer him more towards Republican orthodoxy. You've seen over the course of the last year and a half that he has gotten rid of pretty much all of those people, right? Ryan Priebus is gone. Rex Tillerson is gone. H.R. McMaster is gone. Uh, Gary you know, even people who who weren't you know true Republicans, Gary Cohn is gone, Dina Powell is gone. You know, all these sort of establishment, more moderate figures are all gone. He has gotten rid of them all, either you know through their own resignations or through pushing them out, because he wants people around him who agree with him. He picked Mike Pompeo and he picked John Bolton because they already agree with his pre-existing notions, and so. Yes, they are quote-unquote guiding him, but I fear that really all they're doing is providing confirmation bias. They are just reinforcing and agreeing with what he already believes. So I think that, you know, as we've seen on so many other issues, the president's chief advisor on any issue is himself. So, but, Laura, this has got to be – there's a bigger problem here. Is if, you know, we've seen the way that Trump has treated his attorney general. We've seen how he's treated – his Secretary of Homeland Security. Uh, we've seen how he just beats up his chief of staff at will. It now becomes is if we lose General Mattis as Secretary of Defense, who would take that job? John Bolton. <laughs> Another Ron. hardliner. Hey, maybe he'll pardon Michael Flynn and he'll do it. Laura, go ahead. Um, no, um, all of those are actual options, Zach in the saddest way possible, in my opinion. But the crazier part, in my opinion, is it's not a matter of whom will take this decision, but when, or and how will it be filled in that interim. I think one of the things that this uh, administration really likes to do is kind of drag its feet on filling positions because it knows it can, because it's going to be a headline one day, they weather that storm. Obviously, the defense secretary will be, need to be vetted quickly, but how quickly is quickly on this stage? I mean, he's pretty much, I mean, to use a very uh, pop culture term, he's pretty much trying to ghost on Mattis. He is pretty much facing him out. He's not talking to him in the same way that he used to in prior months. And, yes, while it is very much a situational conversation that they're having, um, a lot of the situations aren't necessarily involving him that should be involved, and he's being forced to play catch-up at every turn. When it comes to replacing um, General Mattis, I, in all honesty, think he will probably keep it in that very inner tight circle, and it will be someone who you're not necessarily expecting, but you've heard of before, whether that is someone from a previous administration that was considered a little bit more far to the right, 
for someone who, in all honesty, doesn't have a lot of military experience, I can honestly say that I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility for uh, President Trump to pick someone who has very minimal um, military experience in any fashion. It doesn't seem as though anyone who is a secretary of any department needs to have a strong background in that force or in that realm. So it really does leave practically every person on the planet that has a U.S. passport on the table for taking over as defense secretary. <laughs> Maybe so who's that guy from that. Fox um, News he loves? Who's that yeah, veteran? Who, uh, who knows, but... I mean, Sean Hannity, maybe. I don't know. Justin, yeah. anybody. Stephen Miller. I mean, the, the possibilities I'm are endless. That, I'm, I'm intrigued that Laura seems to believe that 51 U.S. senators will roll over and say yes to any name that comes forward. It's not going to happen. I don't, uh, I don't believe <laughs> they'll be uh, accepted, but I do believe anyone can be nominated. Well, that, she does have any. That is true. <laughs> Uh, I, anybody I, on this I, show I, can be nominated. That's, I, I believe. Exactly. I, believe that's yeah, I wish you the best of luck in your nomination, and I think you have just as much of a chance as yes. practically anyone else because the prerequisite oh, I don't think for so. holding a secretary. <laughs> but I, all I'm saying is, I think the prerequisite for holding a secretary, I mean, is really see, getting lost. C.E.G. Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who, by all yes, accounts, was a exactly. fantastic doctor, yeah. but yep. not qualified I mean, to run the I mean, department. We know how we, that worked out. And we can go as high as even Dr. Ben Carson, Secretary of yeah. Housing and Urban Development. Oh, we're, a guy no, we have of, what is the brain? Not in the net. Let's 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 at least acknowledge that if the, that when the president, if and when the president has to come up with a new secretary of defense nominee, that there's going to be some consideration to his confirmability. Um, I, and and uh, I don't know that. So, I was yeah. going to say well, you've got four people. You got four people on the line right I, I, now that are questioning that, Alan. Nope. Yeah, I, That's fine. Right. I, I don't. If we were all in agreement, if we were all in agreement. We we wouldn't even have a show if you three people if you guys all want to be wrong it's fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know what? Speaking of being wrong, let's talk about tariffs because we're just going to blow through this uh, this break. Uh, we got to talk about tariffs because in case you haven't noticed, uh, the EU is about to slam American goods with a huge tariff, and including. Motorcycles made by Harley Davidson. Well, Harley Davidson yesterday announced that uh, these tariffs and the lack of business would cost the company upwards of $100 million. So they announced yesterday that they're going to be moving 2,500 jobs at least uh, to Europe to meet the demand of manufacturing overseas. Uh, this is a big, big deal. It goes against uh, everything that the president was holding Harley Davidson up for. Uh, in fact, he even tweeted about it that he said, "No, please don't go. Stay and just have faith to make America great again." Uh, and again, I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing that. But still, this is what we're dealing with. And on top of that, there were just billions of dollars of other tariffs. We're now just shy of an official trade war with China and with the EU. 
but we're having good we're having good dialogue with North Korea. So, uh, Alan Moore, I want to start with you. Did the announcement from Harley Davidson surprise you? You know, <laughs> yes and no. Uh, they they've been consolidating uh, and, and took some flack for that in in domestically. Um, they 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 so proudly. Uh, where the label made in USA that I wasn't aware that they had a facility in Europe that they could move to, to start uh, construction assembly, whatever, maybe they did. It's pretty expensive to start up a new plant that makes something as sophisticated as uh, as a Harley Davidson, but maybe they've got something with BMW, something with somebody else. I have no idea. Uh, I was not, uh, this kind of announcement I was not surprised at at all. Coming from Harley Davidson, yes, I was surprised. But but that's just the first one out of the out of the uh, out of the gate. There are going to be others that would surprise me less. Um, if once these tariffs start to hit, once the impact on markets starts to hit, Harley has, has ex- said they estimate the the impact on. The, on the cost of a single motorcycle with 2200 bucks of, of the, of the pro- two things, the tariffs that, that Europe says they're going to impose on, on Harley's being imported. And two, the impact of higher priced imported steel that goes into Harley's. So Harley's cost of manufacture here in America is going to go up because some of the steel is imported and that kicks up their production costs. And then they have a tariff um, that that would would go to Europe, which is their second largest market. It's the lion's share of their market is is America. It, it's eighty percent of their market. But but you know but Europe's but here's about fifteen percent. Right. But but here's the question I have: is you know we, we saw and and Sharma, we saw the president yesterday in Columbia, South Carolina talking about how he's going to beat up BMW and beat up Volkswagen and all those European car manufacturers. He did this again in Columbia, South Carolina, which is literally two hours away from one of the largest manufacturing plants in BMW's system there at Spartanburg, South Carolina. I think it's Mercedes. No, it's BMW in Spartanburg. Uh, Mercedes is in Atlanta and then in Alabama. Um, but but here's the thing is, you've got Volkswagen. And just in South Carolina, you have Honda, you have BMW, uh, you have uh, Volkswagen in Chattanooga, Tennessee. You've got uh, you've got Mercedes in Georgia and Alabama. You've got Toyota in Alabama. My question to you, Sharmila, is. Does the president not know that if if he really wants to get sideways with these folks, if I'm if I'm on, if I'm Angela Merkel, I'm telling all the CEOs from BMW and Mercedes and everybody, you know what? Screw them. Shut down the plants. Then how are we going to do? How we how do we see economic vitalization through that? Well, I think that the president has supreme confidence in his own in his ability to. A, deflect blame away from his own policies, and B, to get his base to side with him. And so far, you know, with the exception of this child separation policy, he's been largely right. 
right? Like, you know, so far in the instances where the president has gone off, gone after, well, actually, maybe with the exception of Amazon, but in the instances where the president has gone after a certain brand or a certain individual or kind of a certain group, the president's often prevailed, and especially with his base. So I think that the president is counting on the fact, the you know, the fact of his charisma, the fact of you know his his base's captivation with him to really sail him through any sort of real world economic impact that his policies have. But Laura, that, you know, Laura Chavez, I'm sorry, go ahead, finish out. Oh no, I was going to say, you know, it, it's going to be incredibly easy for him. I mean, you look what hap- what's happening with Harley Davidson right now. Right. The president, you know, a few months ago was touting Harley Davidson and, you know, talking about how great this, you know, tariff is going to be for Wisconsin and how Harley Davidson is, you know, bringing all these jobs to Wisconsin as this engine of economic growth. And now he's going after them in, in multiple tweets. And, you know, again, there's an article on political right now saying the president is testing his base, saying who, who do they who are they going to stick with? Are they going to side with Harley or are they going to abandon the brand and go with the president? Because if his bet works out and they abandon the brand to go with the president, then he has leverage there. I mean, Laura Johnson, has- we're, I mean, we're talking about literally the people that elected this president, i.e. the conservative lunch pail Republicans, blue collar. These are people that are working in the BMW, the Mercedes. The, these are people that are going to be working in new factories that are being built. I give you the Volvo factory in South Carolina. He's in South Carolina trying to hammer the EU. Does Is his base not aware of the fact that if he keeps going down this path, it's them that are going to be out of jobs? I, I'm sure that a part of them knows that, but there are so many other nice, shiny things to distract them that they know that that's a problem for the future them. Uh, right now, they can look at you know a big win on the immigration ban. They can look at stronger borders. Uh, what, what's he? What's his saying now? Like uh, strong borders, no crime. They can look at all these other things where they can say that's our guy, that's our guy, that's our guy. And then at the end of that, they can punctuate it with he's going to take care of us because that's what he's been promising this whole time. I mean, you can look back to uh, then candidate Trump saying he's going to really do a lot to bolster the coal industry. Uh, we've yet to see that. But I'm sure that there are people in West Virginia who are still like, yeah, he's going to help us. He's going to do this. He's not going to take our way, our jobs. He wants us to succeed. Uh, there's a, I think Sharmal is right. There's a real charismatic element to him where he relates to a lot of his constituents, even though there is a massive difference between uh, their socioeconomic uh, places. He just genuinely... Doesn't necess- I don't know if he necessarily minds that the people who voted for him and who put him in office are going to be the ones that are hit the hardest. Um, I mean, a lot of people have speculated, and to be perfectly honest, I feel like my head has spun so many times around. I don't know what the main thing in November will be. A lot of people said, like, oh, it's going to be the economy if he if this if Kentucky loses a lot of money from bourbon to China, if aluminum and steel tariffs hit. Uh, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Michigan, and Pennsylvania, and all those key swing states so hard, you know, what's going to happen with their representatives, some governors, you know, all of uh, this handful of Senate seats, like, is this going to be enough to swing the House or the Senate or anything like that? 
But I think what they're forgetting is that there are so many different like hooks to put their hat on that whenever you see a like, oh, so sorry you lost your job, which will really hurt him if a lot of people do lose their jobs, but they'll still be able to fall back on X, Y, and Z other things like, well, this one part of your life isn't great, but I'm going to fix that. I just need to get, you know, more support. We need to get, you know, two-thirds here. We need to get the 51 there. We need to get everyone on our side. We're not the problem. They are. Um, I think one of the things that really does serve him well is the us versus them mentality. And I think that's one of those things that it's, it's almost, he could do a master class in it just because he's good at getting people to get to that us versus them mentality and forget about some of the other issues, even though it might be like, hey, you are jobless right now. I mean, Admiral Ken, we've got a president now that is attacking. Oh, we just lost Admiral Ken. Wow. All right. I'll go. Alan, you'll get the last word on this. Alan, we've got a president that is literally attacking the manufacturers that are doing a majority of their manufacturing investment in this country. And at the same time, he's also taking pot shots at those goods that are exportable. I mean, how many farms are going to have to go under? And how many citrus groves are going to have to go bankrupt? And how many pig farms are going to have to uh, dissolve before we start seeing that the, the whimsical – uh, the whimsical words of this president, they have meaning, and these, these affect people's lives. Well, the, the president's view on the tough talk on tariffs and the imposition of tariffs is the, that our trading partners will knuckle under in short order and that no real damage will be, will be done and that we – uh, America's trade deficits with some of these countries, which he thinks are so horrible, um, will will start moving in in a better direction uh, by his definition, and that was his main complaint with Harley um, that they need some patience here to watch this watch watch his plan work. It's a very very risky plan. We've talked about the risks. We talk about the anticipated after effects of retaliation. Um, whether it's uh, soybeans, um, uh, you, <laughs> the Harley Davidsons of the world, or innumerable companies that you've never heard of that are all important players uh, in the international sphere. So, so th- that w- we just we don't know. You know, he says the damage will be minimal and the gains will be significant. Um, I don't think that's true. Most observers. Don't think that's true, but <laughs> well, many of us have been wrong uh, in, in other in other cases. The bigger risk, though, the bigger risk of, of antagonizing the Europeans and the Japanese, for example, is those need to be our partners in taking on China and China's misbehavior, not the misbehavior of selling uh, stuff that's at Walmart. That is mostly made in China. The the low cost, high you know, uh, labor intensive stuff. It's the Chinese stealing or extorting intellectual property from America. That's next generation stuff. That's the stuff we should care the most about, and that's the stuff the Europeans should be our partners 
in figuring out a joint strategy with the Chinese. But when we drive a wedge between the Europeans, at the same time we drive a wedge between the Chinese, the Europeans are going to give us the finger and say, I guess we'll have to work with the Chinese. Sorry, America. That's the bigger risk. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to let that be the – oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Charmela. Last word real quick. And you see Alan's point is in – in other um, in other scenarios as well, look at the border crisis that's going on, or the the migrant crisis in Central America, antagonizing Mexico both on trade and in immigration is not going to incentivize them to help us secure the southern border, right? So I mean, Alan is completely correct. All all of these actions, even if they're in the trade realm, have ripple effects on the ways we need our allies to help us in multiple ways, not just economically. No, that, that that's very true. Very true. Okay, we've got about six minutes left, so we're going to have to make this quick. Uh, it is time for the parachute pool. Audrey Howerton, our associate producer at a non-disclosed location in Cape Cod. Audrey, uh, who did we have last week? So last week, Sharmila had Rudy Giuliani. Ken had Sarah Huckabee. Dan had Sonny Perdue. Alan had Larry Kudlow. And Justin, you had Rod Rowenstein. I okay, and who? Nielsen last week. Yeah, I thought yeah. so too. Yeah, I think that Are was two sure weeks ago, but it doesn't matter. I think that's two nobody weeks ago. Quit. It doesn't matter. Nobody would yeah. quit. Exactly. <laughs> so nobody quit. So nobody won. I'm... But that that means that nobody won the pool. Now then, here's the thing: is now we're going to pick this week's pool, which will be posted up on our website uh, or on Facebook rather. Uh, I'm going to start with. I'm going to start with. Uh, Sharma, you get first pick. Oh, exciting. Um, I will go with Jim Mattis. Yeah, oh, there you go. Go ahead. Uh, Admiral Ken. I'm going to go with, I'm going to stay with Sarah Huckabee Sanders because, um, this, this thing about her not being able to have, have, uh, have dinner. She don't like missing meals. So she's got to go. Oh, Admiral Ken. <laughs> and I get crap for ha- and I get crap for hashtags. Yeah. Free range children. Wait a minute. That's different. Call we like children. We I'm like gonna call Ken out on that one too. <laughs> well, yeah. Come on. Okay. Oh, oh we're, gonna go back, we're gonna go back to dead. No. Pool, okay. Seriously. Oh, come on. Come on. Uh, let's go to. Uh, let's see. Uh, so Sorry, Laura, we, we should probably let know. We should probably let Laura know what's going on. So Laura, because there's been such a huge uh, departure list coming from the administration. Each week we pick to see who we bet will be the next uh, administration uh, component to leave. Laura, who do you think is the next one that would, is going to leave the Trump administration? Voluntarily uh, or not? Oh, voluntarily yeah, or not. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I actually agree a little bit on the thinking with Alan in that the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Kirsten Nielsen, really doesn't like getting shouted out at Mexican restaurants, and she's probably going to break if that continues. So I'm going to go ahead and throw her hat in the ring. All right. We have Kirsten Nielsen. I am going to pick Kevin McCallum. I think the fact that he said I'm not referring anything to the U.S. Attorney this month pretty much guarantees he's either going to be bounced or want to spend more time with his family. Audrey, do you have this week's list? I you, do, and you forgot you forgot me. Uh, by yeah, the way, Justin, I don't think Alan. Picked. Oh, I got Alan. I'm so I'm so sorry, Alan. I did. Alan, who's your pick? I'm it's so sorry. Right. So I've been 
No, no, no. I've been writing with Pruitt for a long time. I left left him one week, went back to Pruitt, but this week I'm I'm now going to turn my attention to Jeff Sessions, who who because of his disgraceful behavior in this whole immigration issue has lost uh, some of the support he had on the Hill. Jeff said, Sessions. Oh, wow. Jeff Sessions is your pick. Okay. Uh, Audrey, you've got the list. We'll get that posted up on our Facebook site, uh, facebook.com slash backroom politics radio. Uh, we've got uh, just under two minutes left. Uh, first of all, I want to say special thanks. Laura Chavez out in Chicago. I hope you had a good time. Thanks for joining us. Hope you'll join us again. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. I had a great you... time. Thanks for uh, being slightly gentle with me. Slightly? That was gentle? Yeah, only the first time. Only the first time, <laughs> Laura. I only need one to get my sea leg. <laughs> and uh, that being said, on behalf of now, Laura Chavez, Sharma Chari, uh Admiral Ken Carradine, the Honorable Alan Moore, our associate producer at our undisclosed location, Audrey Howerton. I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week with another edition of the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. By the way, you can follow us at our website, www.backroompolitics.org, where you can subscribe to From the Cutting Room Floor, which is written every day at 5 o'clock by our very own Audrey Howerton. Uh, you can also see the latest postings from our folks around the table. I know Admiral Ken has been drawing some attention on his latest op-ed. Um, you can also follow us on Facebook, like I said, at www.facebook.com slash radio. You can follow us on Twitter, at BackroomPolitik. You can also email me uh, at uh, or Justin, or I'm sorry, info at backroompolitics.org. And oh, by the way, you can also download the podcast. We're on Google Podcasting. You can download us on Google now, which is kind of a big deal, as well as iTunes, as well as TuneIn Radio, as well as every major podcasting streaming line that you can. Thanks again, America. We'll see you next Tuesday. Backroom Politics.